Welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today we are excited to be joined by Fiori Brahane, who's an assistant professor of anthropology. Fiori broadly researches the ways in which African refugees challenge discursive and legal juridical frameworks that undergrid the central Mediterranean crossing. Fiori is at USC. And Fiori, this is your third time, I think, on the show. Yes, Lev. Thank you so much for having me again. <laughs> I'm so happy to talk to you. I should say, in full disclosure, we are, we are now friends and we talk all the time, but this is the third time on the show. So Fiori, I want to talk about a paper that you've written um, that you're going to- It's not to... published yet though. <laughs> it's not published, right. It's, I wanted to ask you, so you're going to deliver this paper at Harvard and- it's for a workshop series. This, this paper is, it's fascinating. And I have to say, I struggled a little bit with how to, how to approach it because it's, it's a little bit different than anything we've, we've talked about um, on the show, just in terms of structure. So maybe the first thing we'll do is we will talk about your field work in 2015 first, and then you returned to Bologna in 2017. Maybe I want to start with, you know, what the field work was and what you were hoping to accomplish going to Bologna. So I work on um, the question of the Eritrean community, collective memory, political organizing, uh, around the migration crisis. So there were, you know, part of my interest in looking at Eritreans is that Eritreans were a group that was heavily, you know, huge number of Eritreans arriving in the European Union vis-a-vis Italy at most, I think about 60,000 people at, during the summers at a time. Um, and yet they were just never really part of the public imagination of, of the crisis, which focused on Syrian refugees. I mean, I could say that, interestingly enough, um, around uh, at the time of the war in Syria, about two to 7,000 people were leaving Syria as a result of the war, but that number was the same for Eritreans. Two to 7,000 Eritreans were leaving monthly from Eritrea in a country that was ostensibly at peace. So there were all these questions around this kind of invisibility, right? The fact that Eritrea was Italy's uh, oldest colony, and yet Italian colonialism is a kind of forgotten historical moment for much of Italian society. The fact that this was a group that was overrepresented relative to their population size. Mind you, Eritrea is a country of 3 million people. Syria's <laughs> population dwarfs that. Mm-hmm. And you know, and also is interested particularly in the city of Bologna because Bologna had a long-standing relationship, uh, the city government there with the Eritrean People's Liberation Front, which was the guerrilla group that fought successive Ethiopian regimes and eventually became the party of the state, the party for democracy and justice, as it's called now, and the party that uh, many young people are, many young people are kind of fleeing from from this party one party rule so there were all these questions which i thought made my project interesting to think about the migration crisis not as a crisis for europeans who have to deal with difference or of tolerance or questions of human rights versus security not in terms of you know um an older kind of story i mean i was interested in this to think about well what are the intra-communal politics of this crisis because i had done field work in 2005 in eritrea and mind you these people the earlier generations of eritreans who settled in much of the united states so there's two waves of eritrean refugees 
those who came from the 60s to the to the 90s, to the early 90s, whom uh, Trisha Redeker Hepner calls the nationalist generation. And these people, there are a lot of political um, differences even amongst this group, but their identities coalesce around the what is called the, the struggle, the struggle for liberation. And so many of them still have very strong loyalties to the political party that the party that represents the state currently. But this younger generation that started fleeing since 2001 onwards has faced really very distinct global circumstances and changes in, in the migration, the global migration regime. And we can discuss that even more. But those young people, their identities are, are as they explained to me, coalesce around the experiences of military service in Eritrea, which is um, indefinite. And that's one of the many reasons why the what the UN rapporteur credits for driving out migration from Eritrea and uh, their experience in crossing the Mediterranean. So many of them called themselves or we who came by the sea. So this was like a fundamental um, this experience fundamentally created, you know, a sense of a collective identity that was distinct from this earlier generation. So in 2015, when I arrived, there were, you know, thousands of people transiting through um, Italy into uh, Northern Europe, uh, not only Eritreans, but Syrians, you would see Nigerians, you would see just so many Somalis and on the eastern side, it was mostly uh, refugees from the Middle East through the Balkans route. But by 2017, you just never saw people in those circumstances transiting anymore. And so then the paper kind of takes a retrospective look at the, the transformations that I've seen, not only from 2017, but even now in terms of these radical shifts in how migration is managed globally that have that are really you know amazing for what a compressed time frame that these changes have taken place mm -hmm. you know it's been only seven years and policies that were once kind of deemed radical or illegal or deeply unethical are now just kind of um, they're not even just they're de rigueur they're just normal normalized mm -hmm. you know they're not even kind of hidden from public view I want to talk about these changes and, and the policies, the specific policies um, in just a sec, but I want to go back to, I'm really curious about, <laughs> practically, you arrive in 2015, I'm very interested in, in field work and how you conduct it. How do you find the people to, to interview and how do you, how do they understand your, your role and your purpose and what you're doing there? And what was it like to, to meet these people? So I would say that field work kind of has to take, you know, part of the reason it's really hard to do anthropological field work um, is that you don't really control the process. And it's a very naturalistic process in that case. It's, it feels very often serendipitous. And, you know, what we call snowballing as um, social scientists really means you make a friend, the friend introduces you to their friend, and then you kind of end up finding and being part of these already existing social networks. So, I mean, I literally just took a walk mm -hmm. <laughs> um, in the neighborhood. I tried to find neighborhood associations. They did not 
kind of invite me in. Um, Wait, any sorry, kind Fiori, of- can I ask, are, are these neighborhood associations, are these the older nationalists? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they were, and some some like NGOs that work with migrants. There's a lot in Italy. There's a focus on what we call intercultural associations, and those are usually some of them are kind of feminist in origin. Some are Catholic, but the idea is that they bring locals and migrants together because they see because of the way that kind of Italians um, conceptualize. It's not necessarily a multicultural discourse but it's about it's a discourse about kind of cultural encounters mm-hmm. I couldn't really meet people that way I was my Italian wasn't good enough and I guess I just looked too young to people mm-hmm. and not enough gravitas Italy is a country where the average age is 47 so mm-hmm. so it and I was in my early 30s at that point so I just took a walk and I think I met someone who had a, a kind of Um, crazy life story whom I'm writing about, who is part of the diaspora, who, um, who just took an interest in my research. Like he found that it was politically important to him. And that's how I kind of met all of the people that I ended up working with over the years is through this one chance encounter. So fieldwork has this kind of you can always use, um, it's harder, I would say this, with a group that is kind of marginalized, invisibilized, it's really hard to do fieldwork because it's difficult first to find people, but secondly, it's also difficult to create rapport and trust. Um, You're not, and people are scattered, they're kind of atomized, so it's not the same as doing fieldwork with an NGO where you're going to go someplace every single day and you know what the shape of your day will look like, that you'll always have access. That's not the case in urban ethnography. It's not the case when you work with vulnerable people either outside of an NGO setting. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about the, you, in, your, in this paper, you focus on a, a couple of, of young people. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe you can talk to me a little bit about their story and how they got to Italy and Maybe in that conversation, you, you know, you said that Eritrea is a one-party state, but I know very little bit about the context of Eritrea. So, what are they? What were they escaping from? The Eritrean, the struggle itself was actually a pretty, you know, remarkable political movement of that time. Um, you know, this was a kind of David and Goliath story. I mean, part of that is nationalist myth-making, but part of that is also actual political fact. You know, the Eritrean mm-hmm. guerrillas, you know, they organized in the Sahel. It's one of the most brutal places on earth. Um, they had underground hospitals. They, um, you know, they, what they said is that they liberated women, but women made up 30% of frontline combatants, which is very unusual anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, they had democratic marriages. They had they had this kind of vision for a, a utopia, a you, you know, a, a complete and radical transformation of society alongside, you know, what was common then, a developmental modern modernism, right? You see that with the Syrian regime. You've seen that with a lot of post-colonial regimes that their promises were based on the notion of economic and social development, right? Vis-a-vis 
um, Marxist and well, specifically with the Eritrean example, Maoist and Leninist economic principles, right? Mm -hmm. uh, command economy. So in 1991, you know, Ethiopia was first supported by the United States um, and then by the Soviet Union. And the Eritrean People's Liberation Front, you know, eventually captured the Eritrean, sta uh, Eritre Eritrean state alongside um, its ally, the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front. Um, and then Ethiopia actually amended its constitution to say that, you know, um, that self-determination was a right, you know, any mm. kind of uh, province can secede from the Ethiopian state uh, to allow for Eritrea to secede. Mm. So, which actually will lead to some of the issues that we're seeing now with the war in Tigray. But mm -hmm. so what happens is 1991, 1993, there's a referendum, 98% of Eritreans uh, vote for independence. Uh, um, and, you know, there's a kind of period of what people believe is promise and prosperity. But then in 1998, there was a second border war. There was a second war with Ethiopia over this region called Badame that for many people was didn't really make much sense uh, to outsiders. And it was judged, adjudicated on the basis of Italian colonial maps. Um, Badame was awarded to Eritrea, but Ethiopia did not accept the stipulations of the Algiers peace agreement. That, you know, was a kind of pretext to be honest, but um, that created a scenario of no war, no peace between the two countries mm. for about 20 years until 2018, actually, very recently. And in 2001, September 11th, a number of government ministers signed a letter criticizing Isayas Afwerki, the president who's still the current president, his handling of the war, saying that there should have been democratic and diplomatic responses, not a rush to war. And those ministers were invited, I think, to speak with the with the president and many of and I think most of them were disappeared. So this moment created a kind of crackdown uh, on political political dissent on poli just political life. So newspapers were shuttered and what was once uh, military and national service, which was about rebuilding this country and, you know, mobilizing um, a sense of volunteerism, et cetera, which was supposed to be about 18 months for, for young people became indefinite. So you are, you know, laboring for the state for pittance and, um, you know, people often don't get released from military service and well until well in their fifties. So they begin at 17 and then they just stay um, in this kind of limbo for their for the majority of their adult lives. And, you know, Amnesty International has said that there are networks of underground secret prisons. So there's arbitrary detention, torture, disappearances, sexual violence, systemic sexual violence against female recruits in um, in, you know, the system of national of military service. So there's a number of issues that many of these young people are facing a, a sense of a sense of futurelessness, right? Um, and many of them articulate it as such. And the issues that they face, and this was common during my fieldwork, is that 
Western observers cannot understand this notion of Africa, uh, you know, so much of the imaginary has been based around the question of economic development, but also the health crises, right? Eight, HIV, AIDS, et cetera. So when my interlocutors went to Geneva to, because the UN um, rapporteur had published a report about the, the kinds of human rights and political rights abuses in Eritrea, and they felt that this was the first moment that the political situation in Eritrea was getting any kind of sense of visibility. A reporter asked them, well, what's the problem? You don't really, you're, you're reaching your millennium development goals and mm-hmm. you, you don't have a high rate of HIV AIDS. So why are you all fleeing? Mm-hmm. And my interlocutor was taken aghast, Like he just couldn't understand her question. But for many of the people I work with, you know, having political freedoms, having what they imagine is a good life, a life worth living for, is distinct from the modes in which Western um, observers, Western thinkers are thinking about and writing about Africa as a problem, as as African societies having a problem with development, with HIV AIDS, with, you know, these health crises, which are just looking at the bare kind of necessities of maintaining people's bodies, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> of imagining black people solely as as bodies right mm-hmm. um and humanitarianism is instrumental in that right humanitarianism is about the immediate horizon the immediate question of whether a person will live and die or die and keeping them alive right which is very which is actually quite distinct from thinking about human flourishing or all of the other aspects that make people that make people want to live lives that they think are worth living. So I hope that answered your question. That was, that was very, very clear. And it does, it was so clear that it makes me think, you know, why is it so difficult for Western observers to understand that, okay, that's not necessarily a developmental crisis. And it's also not necessarily a health crisis, but it's a different sort of crisis and a very, a very clear crisis. Um, political one. Political crisis. Exactly. So, Maybe we could focus it on, on Youssef. He's, he's one of the people that you spend a lot of time with. He's an activist in Bologna. What, what is his story? How does he come from Eritrea to, how does he come from Eritrea to, to Italy? Well, his is a very common story that most people share. And he, he's an actor, so he kind of narrates it as kind of, as an everyman story, right? Um, he often says that his gra- great-grandfather was an Ascaro, which was an Italian colonial soldier. So um, majority of Eritreans were enlisted in Italy's colonial expeditions. About half of the population was, uh, they called it a garrison state. So about 750,000 people were, you know, um, were sent as soldiers to Libya, to Somalia, to Ethiopia which represented at that time close to half of the population of of the country. So he always narrates it as his great-grandfather was um, sent to Libya, which is, you know, true of my family as well. Um, His his father was a guerrilla fighter, right? Um, The the people that of the nationalist generation that I described and that his generation is the generation that crosses the Mediterranean where they're promised freedom, right? They're promised that these people who've experienced colonial bondage, who've experienced war, you know, finally, there's a sense of what should be a promised peace. 
and which should be, you know, what that means for the individual, right? Um, and what that kind of, you know, if you think about what do we owe future generations, right? What these people sacrificed for, for people like Yosef. So many young people, um, they either, you know, there's networks of smuggling, you know, kind of a, a clandestine network that gets you out of Eritrea. You either go to the camps in, um, you either go to Khartoum um, in Sudan, or you go to the refugee camps in, North, in Tigray in, in Ethiopia. From there, you either pay a smuggler or sometimes you're trafficked. And you, you know, make Fury, can I can I make, can I ask you just a quick question? In your paper, you make a distinction between mm -hmm. smugglers and, and traffickers. What is the difference? It's a huge and important difference. A sm smuggling is consensual, right? So smuggling arises because of the fact that you know um, that border crossings have been become illegalized. Border crossings are tech crossing an international border. It's technically, you know, at least in the U.S., it's not a criminal offense. It's a civil one. Mm -hmm. So these are people who enable those, you know, you pay to cross a border. So they're in one way or another, a very different category from a trafficker. There's a consensual and transactional relationship here. Right. Um, it's there may or may not be violence, but, you know, a smuggler <laughs> is a, a categorical difference from a trafficker. A trafficker, on the other hand, takes someone against their will across international borders, usually to be exploited for labor, sexual exploitation, whatever it can be. To collapse the difference between these two is a major, I mean, part of the, the reason to collapse the difference between the two is to conflate smuggling with trafficking to inf to then kind of ramp up policing of borders, right? Because mm -hmm. if you say a tra if you say trafficking, this is like a clear moral, ethical, and legal violation, one that's degrees higher, if not in kind, from what a smuggler does. A smuggler is just helping you, and you know, a smuggler helps refugees too. You know, someone who is seeking refuge has the right by international law to seek refuge wherever they can they have the right to cross international borders that's that's why a refugee is an exceptional figure in that regard so there is a difference between that but what i write about with eritreans is actually even different from trafficking or smuggling which is about kidnap and extortion which i can then get into yeah so you get to Libya and in Libya, there's all kinds of different forms of detention, but like he came, I think after the 2011, uh, I think he, I'm not sure which year he came, if I'm to recall, but you know, he came at a point in which Italy was patrolling the Mediterranean and rescuing migrant uh, boats, right? Um, which is different from now. That's not no longer the case because of these policies that I write about. And then he arrives in Italy and then he's someone who actually transits and leaves Italy and then, you know, gets deported back to Italy because of the Dublin mechanisms, which is, you know, um, you have to apply for asylum, the first country you enter into in the EU under the Dublin Accords, which means that 
the poorest countries in Europe end up having the greatest kind of burdens of care, right? Mm-hmm. Greece, Italy, Spain, you know, these are the borders or even countries in Eastern Europe, if you're going through the Balkans route. So that's kind of his every man story. Mm-hmm. And he's applying for asylum. And is this humanitarian asylum? And, and you talk about the difference between humanitarian versus economic migrants. Mm-hmm. And what that difference is. So how does the asylum process work? Do you have to apply yeah. um, as a humanitarian asylum? Seeker? Well, there's no such thing as asylum for economic migrants. I see. <laughs> so, you know, what we say, so what we've seen is that starting in the 1990s, that humanitarian protection asylum, you know, the rates of acceptance went down radically. And this kind of label of economic migrant started kind of being bandied about, which refers to people from poor countries, right? So the idea is that, you know, the the asylum seeker is a pejorative term. It it means that there's an idea that behind this person who is seeking asylum, there's a level of dissimulation, right? That what they are escaping from is economic deprivation. They're looking for economic opportunity and they're not uh, they're not a refugee, right? That they're not being persecuted because of their race or their affiliation with a political group, uh, but that they are just kind of abusing the system. You know, the vast majority, and but who gets to be called a refugee is also deeply contingent on the political situation mm-hmm. between the sending context and the receiving context, right? So for example, the United States didn't call... Um, I'm not sure if it was people from El Salvador refugees because of the role it had with the Iran-Contra crisis, but it called uh, Nicaraguans refugees on the other hand, right? Um, So these are kinds of, these labels also really depend on the relationship between sending and receiving context. So the vast majority of people from the global South who try to, to leave, who try to receive asylum are automatically kind of cast under suspicion and, you know, labeled as economic migrants. And this is very true, especially of kind of of West African um, immigrants, et cetera. However, Eritreans have uh, under the UN uh, temporary protection status, which is a status that's reserved where there's such, there is credible threats to, um, to to the lives of these people in a mass situation, a mass displacement situation, so that um, they're not automatically deported, that governments are told to, you know, actually spend time adjudicating individual cases, right? Um, That they have to, right? Many Eritreans get the kind of highest level of uh, humanitarian, what I call recognition, which is international protection. And then the second level is subsidiary protection. And subsidiary protection means that, you know, once it's once uh, the situ- political situation in your country of origin is resolved, you know, you could go back. Right. Um, international protection means you you really can't ever go back. So in that way, you know, um, the experience of many Eritreans is kind of distinct from that of their of their of many of their compatriots, African compatriots or or people from Bangladesh or for you know much of the global south or even Ukrainians before the war. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well Fiori then I'm wondering why if it's 
I mean, this, I think, I want you to, if you could get into this paradox of the system, why, if it seems so welcoming, I mean, the, the system seems so welcoming to, say, Eritreans in this case, because it provides them these protections, these double layer of protections. Why do you see then between 2015 and 2017 such a, a decline in the number of people who are from Eritrea who are entering Italy? because what I also call the kind of the question of visibility, right? So European authorities want to reduce the number of refugees, of refugees also in particular. So the, there are similar deals against Syrians as well, right? So what happened was in 2017, Italy partnered uh, through a memorandum of understanding with Libya, right? There, <laughs> Libya technically doesn't really... I mean, there is a technical government in Libya that the UN recognizes, the government of national accord. But there's like multiple sovereign parties, you know, and, and sovereignty we mean by the classic Weberian kind of, you know, the idea of a monopoly of violence uh, within a territory, a legitimate monopoly of violence. So there's multiple sovereigns in um, in Libya, right? So Italy signed these, this memorandum of understanding to train the Libyan Coast Guard um, and to provide them with, uh, to train them so that they could uh, send back boats that they intercepted in the Mediterranean, right? Because the law is that if a boat is in distress, it's the law of the sea, you have to rescue people. But how do you circumvent that responsibility is the question, right? Um, so part of it was to train these for these um, this Coast Guard. The, you know, there are many allegations that many of these people in the Coast Guard are traffickers themselves or members of militias. Mm -hmm. And so the people get returned to Libya and then they face these detention systems. Right. The thing is, there are detention centers in Libya that are run by uh, and inspected by the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. And the idea is that if you go to one of these detention centers, you have the you can be evacuated. So this is what we call the kind of externalization of asylum. The truth of the matter is when you look at the what happens in these detention centers, very few people actually get. Um, and, you know, Libya is a, a constant state of war. Very few people actually do get evacuated from them. Um, so, you know, it maintains this kind of humanitarian you know, system where the point is to keep people alive, but barely alive, like nothing beyond just your bare, the bare necessities of living. And so that's one aspect. I mean, it, they also did the same with, um, with Turkey, right? So Turks can now travel to the European Union with fewer restrictions because of these um, deals that were, um, that where Turkey would kind of serve as a safe country for Syrians, right, would block the movements of Syrians. So part of it is that, you know, part of it is that there is a desire to kind of limit these mobilities, but there's a targeting of these refugee populations because of the responsibilities to actually provide refuge for these peoples, should they even arrive in the first place. So I if see. you can kind of prevent them from arriving, you don't have to you don't have to um, shoulder this responsibility. They have to get there in the first place. Right. And the Italians are saying they're doing, or the Europeans, I should say, are, are, are doing this because they say because they, they want to stop trafficking. Yes. But they don't say trafficking. They say smuggling. I see. And right. they're, then they are conflating the two things. Yeah. And also, it seems to be really interesting. So, like, they are 
cutting down on the number of, say, Eritreans who can come into Europe, even as they recognize that mm-hmm. there's a deep crisis in Eritrea. Yeah. And they've earmarked all this developmental aid and they're not getting what they wanted. They had to decommit 100 million of it because of the role of Eritrea in the war in Tigray. They thought that a development and dialogue would ameliorate the situation. Um, But because it's a political crisis, I think that's one of the issues. Like it's not intelligible, right, to European powers what's going on because it's so anachronistic. It comes from a a period of time of, of totalitarian power, which is not what's true of how governments operate in the global South in, in this neoliberalized moment, right? You know, governments, you know, they're functioning through NGOs, you know, fractured sovereignties, et cetera. And so Eritrea is a strong state, you know, um, in a, in a mm-hmm. classic sense, it, it maintains a monopoly of violence. There aren't gangs, there aren't NGOs, there aren't, you know, the government has total control over society, the economy, et cetera, which is something that you don't, you no longer see anymore. I want to go back to Libya for a sec. So when you're in Libya, you can end up at these camps that are, I don't know if they're controlled by the UNHCR or they're just inspected, inspected by, and then there are other situations you can find yourself in too, right? Like it seems like that being in a place where at least the UNHCR is coming in and is inspecting, it seems like that may be marginally better than the other places that you might be. So what are these other places that people end up? So you can be, there's two things. You can you can be trafficked, right? Um, so, but what happens to Eritreans very often is that you're kidnapped and extorted. And people, so, or you could be kidnapped and extorted even while you're trafficked. So what will happen is, and Miriam Van Ryzen has written about this, they will, you know, ask you to call your family members abroad. They'll videotape you being tortured and they'll extract a ransom. And at some point they'll let you go. Sometimes they'll put you on a boat, you know, off you go to Italy, mm-hmm. you know? And so, you know, this is actually, a, you know, a rational decision to subject yourself to this because, if you think about it rationally, you may never get out of that situation with the UNHCR camp. You might get resettled to Rwanda and have to start again. Mm. And that's another issue that we can talk about. Um, but if you do... Wait, sorry, to- Fiori, sorry, just to be clear. So if the UNHCR resettles mm-hmm. you, they are not going to resettle you in Europe? They promise to, but that's not what's happened. I see. Yeah, not in substantial numbers, but many people have been re- resettled to Rwanda. Wow. Which is an interesting case because we can get back to that, too. Um, No, no, maybe talk about that now because it's it's interesting now, right? Yeah. Well, so the United Kingdoms. So one of my interlocutors had said, you know, when this first memorandum of understanding was signed with Libya, that he understood himself and Eritreans as little mice in a laboratory where we're the ones that are being experimented on to see if the poison kills. And if it, it keeps you barely alive, then, then, it, then it's going to be tried out on everyone else. Mm. And he, you know, those words were actually quite prescient because in 2018, so 
Israel had a number of secret deals with Rwanda and Uganda to deport, self-deport, voluntarily deport Eritreans there. And they would give $3,500 to uh, Eritreans uh, who, because many Eritreans were in Israel and they, they were in a state of limbo, right? Nobody, the Israeli government didn't hear their asylum cases. They were in very difficult situations. They were being put in camps in the Negev desert. Uh, and so people would voluntarily self-deport. Um, and many of those people then ended up either, you know, Rwandan or Ugandan authorities would take their money and then they would have to start again. They would have to make the journey all the way to Libya from Rwanda or Uganda. And um, so in 2018, the Israeli government wanted to make this a policy. There was a lot of public outcry against it. And uh, it was, and the Supreme, the Israeli courts uh, ruled it unconstitutional. So it never kind of got the go ahead. But it, just now, recently, Pretty Patel in the UK has made this an official policy mm -hmm. that the UK would um, externalize asylum to Rwanda. And they did it on the basis of a memorandum of understanding, which is a particular kind of legal document, the one, the same one that was like used in. Um, with the deals with Libya. And part of it that's interesting about these is that they're, they're gentlemen's agreements, you know? They're like ways to circumvent responsibility in international laws. They're not as strong as treaties, um, but it depends how a court can hear these. But, you know, human rights groups are really struggling to hold governments accountable because of the nature of these legal instruments. But these were the, you know, these policies, like my interlocutors said, were first tried out on Eritreans because, you know, as they kind of understand themselves as kind of peripheral and, you know, unimportant in terms of these geostrategic interests, but also in terms of, you know, the imaginaries of refugeehood and of whose lives count and just the fact that people just don't even know where the country is. Yeah. And so these are the, just so I can recap, these are the changes that happened between in this very short period between yeah. 2015 and 2017, basically. 2015 and 2020 to 2022 to now. I see. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. So, so the seven years. So basically it's a recognition of how bad the crisis is in Eritrea. And then the response is to cut off the flow of anybody who might mm -hmm. be able to seek asylum in Europe yeah. and you do that by sort of outsourcing the policing of the Mediterranean and the you sort of send people either to Libya or to Rwanda is that correct is that yeah. the story as far away from Europe as possible that's that's um it's that's terrible and amazing and it also just is really analogous it feels like to to what Trump was doing, but in, in some ways it feels like the Europeans were doing it before the Americans. Yeah, and the Australians before that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've been thinking a lot about, in your work, you talk about the, the this, Youssef communicating with people from Italy to, say, Libya, to these camps that they're in, in Libya, and people are, are documenting, talking mm -hmm. about their experiences, sometimes torture, but also just the whole, the whole trip, the whole voyage. And on one hand, you know, you think, well, if you document the thing, like we're seeing with Ukraine today, then it becomes, these, these images become viral, they mm -hmm. go global, 
And you would imagine that people around the world would step up and say, whoa, like I didn't know this was happening Mm -hmm. and we need to, we need to stop this, but that's not happening. So how do we, how do we explain that? So that's uh, the big paradox of our times and something that I've written about in my, you know, my dissertation, et cetera. I mean, you think about it also with Black Lives Matter, right? Um, This kind of viral recognition, right? Of the, you see, you know, this is incontrovertible. You see Black men and women being shot. There's no accountability, right? And the idea we've often had in terms of human rights organizing and human, um, even the civil rights movement, right? Which televised, you know, the March on Selma to show the brutality that the police exercised in a peaceful march, right? This was about creating shame, right? And shame is a powerful political affect, right? Um, You don't see that anymore. I don't, I mean, visibility of these crimes is not necessarily creating the conditions for public organizing and protest movements. I read a great article in the New York and the London Review of Books, which was writing about Russians who dissent um, with Putin's um, invasion of Ukraine. And they ca- called it dissent without power, right? That in the early 20th centuries, you had workers' movements that were able you know, internationalism, right, that was able to stop wars, that you had this collective mobilization, collective power that could do something about these large, about war, about the crimes associated with war, about all sorts of social and political inequalities that you're just kind of not seeing now, right, this public outrage or, you know, there's a certain kind of level of collective fatigue and defeat and a desire kind of for distraction in the midst, right? I think a big part of it is that the horizon for politics has really changed. We're living through a moment where you have a looming kind of ecological catastrophe that you have this like five-year window to solve. And so people are not really thinking about wider questions of, well, how will we change our world towards a more egalitarian one when we're just ourselves trying to hang on to bare life, right? To barely kind of getting through this five-year window where our governments are just unaccountable for in many ways. So I'm not, I don't know. I think what that means is that we're going for people is that, and the paradox from my own interlocutors is how to think about a new way of doing politics because this older way, this older left liberal tradition is just like not working at this moment. Um, And I think that that's a situation that extends to many other um, groups of people, not only um, just the the air trans that I write about. I want to ask you um, sort of one last question that I've been Uh trying to to ask the guests because I, I need it. So um, what is the thing in the world right now which is making you most optimistic? I think like the, you know, the Sunrise Movement, youth activism uh, around the climate, around climate justice. I think that these young activists, you know, they're historically attuned. They understand the role of colonialism and Western supremacy 
but they also think about a future, right? Um, not only for themselves, but for, you know, for all the beings on planet Earth. And I think that for young people to to say that older generations need to be responsible, right? That question, which is a really a question about historical responsibility. Everybody, all of these powerful actors are trying to evade responsibility. And so for me to see young people collectively around the world to say, no, someone needs to be held to account and that we need a future, that we deserve a future, I think is a very powerful statement to me. I think it, I think that that fills me actually with quite a bit of hope.